We went through all of that and shared all of that with our investors and with those original philosophies of trying to keep things as tight as possible. But at the same time, knowing that going into the US is an expensive market and you have to go big or go home at that point. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora. my name is Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of Investment at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Today on the Investment Fix, we're talking with two New Zealand companies that have chosen international venture capital to fund their growth. So with me to talk about why they opted for offshore backing and what that investment process involved are Robotics Plus founder, CEO and chair Steve Saunders and Dexibit founder and chief executive Angie Judge. Welcome Steve, welcome Angie. Hi Dylan. Hi Dylan. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So kick us off. Nailing your elevator pitch is often something that companies struggle with when they're fronting up to investors. Can we start by hearing yours? And maybe we'll throw to you first, Angie. At Dexivit, we do big data analytics specifically for visitor attractions, both cultural and commercial, helping them get more people through the door, get them engaging and spending a bit more and loyally coming back. And we do that through forecasts, insights, dashboards and reports. Fantastic. And Steve? Robotics Plus's vision is about empowering people, land, trade to fulfill their potential through advanced robotics. Our mission is really designing and building elegant platform technologies that improve quality, productivity and sustainability across the food and fibre supply chain through advanced technologies. We build solutions for large global problems. We are building a better future. And just to give people a sense of your growth journey to date, can you tell us when you founded your company, what size you're at now in terms of your team and offices, and where your customers are based. We're sort of four or five years into the journey now. We've got a team of 20, which is split between our office in Auckland, where we do R&D, and then in Washington, D.C., where we've got our customer-facing team. And our customer base is fairly globally spread. Most of it is in the North American region, but through UK and Europe, and then a sprinkling through Asia-Pacific. And what about you, Steve? We originally founded back in 2008, but that was a five-year journey of supporting my co-founder, Alistair, through his PhD. At the end of that journey, we took Alistair and Kyle and started really transforming Robotics Plus. In 2017, we took 2 million US with Yamaha Motorco, and we've grown from 12 to 74 in the last 18 months and we've got 16 jobs advertised. We're based in Tauranga, New Zealand, but we also have an office in Palo Alto and San Francisco Bay Area. Some pretty big growth journeys, some pretty short space of time. Now to fund that growth, you've both needed to attract investors and you've both secured significant international venture capital. The interesting thing is that you've both taken quite different routes to that investment. Angie, can you fill us in on the different capital rounds you sought before seeking your international backing? And then how did you determine that time was right to bring on international? We did three stages of investment. We did, first of all, a seed round, which is a triple F of friends, families and 
shall we say, faithful rather than fools. And then we did an angel round. So our investors involved in that were ice angels. And then we actually went through an incubator for a lightning lab with that as well through Creative HQ. And then we did a mini series A, which was led by Investable and Rampersand over in Australia, together with Ice Angels and K1 from here in New Zealand. And I think for software companies, that software as a service is a long, slow ramp of death on revenue. So you do need a little bit of investment to get going, to get your product into the right space. But if you make that too high, then you tend to overbuild your product for what you need and We had a really big belief in efficiency and making sure the economics of the business worked. And you hear of so many startups these days that are raising millions in their first round for SaaS. And that seems really crazy to me because you really only need half a mil to validate a SaaS play if you're doing it sort of through building early revenues. And so we had a really big focus on that. And I think that decreases your dependency on investment and rather than focus completely on build and worry about revenue later on. You could get a nice balance of working out your sales mechanisms early on and your product approach is more iterative. And as a founder too, you sort of go into it a little bit semi-bootstrap. So um, if you can not draw a salary or make it a modest one, that sort of reduces your capital requirements early on and that way you don't dilute too early on in the piece to reduce your options and attractiveness later on. So those were sort of the philosophies behind our approach. And then how did you determine the time was right to bring on international capital? I think we were at the stage with the business where we felt we'd sort of proven out the need in the market, the fit of the product and solving that, our ability to attract great people and great customers, and we were ready to begin scaling. And that sort of felt like the right time to take that leap. Fantastic. And Steve, you secured a US $10 million Series A round from Yamaha, How did you determine the right time to seek that investment and that they were the right investor for you? For us, it came down to strategy and it was all about strategic money. For us, Yamaha brought a global brand alongside our name. It brought a lot of introductions to us. So if we look at it in two parts, in terms of working with Yamaha Ventures in the US, we get a lot of the market intel and insights, what's going on, what startups are coming, where we sit in the space. And then from the corporate side, we bring this big corporate with the ability to help us with scale manufacturing, design for manufacturing. So we've got all these great young engineers, but we haven't been through a process of scaling up design for manufacturing and manufacturing. So we really tap into the Yamaha corporate in Japan who has oodles of that, of course, with their uh, wave runners and motorbikes and all things Yamaha. It was just really great for us. And in fact, Yamaha are now manufacturing some of our componentry for us, which is pretty exciting. And what about you, Angie? You raised the $4 million Series A round from Rampersand and Investable. How did you determine how much you needed to raise there and why them? In SaaS, there's three main buckets. You've got your R&D and then your sales and marketing and then a few sort of other overhead costs. And We went with a split of sort of 75-25 in terms of how much we were spending on our core R&D versus getting product out in market and sold. We were really careful as well about our order of hiring that had gone into that budget of what roles we were going to bring on when, when we were scaling the company and always making sure that whenever we brought on an individual contributor role that we brought on two of those rather than one so we could compare performance and work out quickly if something was or wasn't working and get on top of that really early because particularly scaling in sales and success in the US, it is a bit of a 
trial and error game to begin with and then it's a little bit of a numbers game so we sort of kept really on top of that in terms of our budgeting and execution we went through all of that and shared all of that with our investors and with those original philosophies of trying to keep things as tight as possible but at the same time knowing that going into the US is an expensive market and you have to go big or go home at that point we wanted to make sure that we had enough to get over that initial leap You've been self-funding, Steve, and then you wait till Series A to do your first big capital round. And to do so, you're going to have to give up some control of your company in the process. How did you approach valuation and determine how much control you were or you weren't prepared to give up? What was the thought process that went on there? We actually had a really strong five-year business plan, growth path strategy, technical roadmaps, and we validated our model. So we put a number on our valuation. And in fact, the great thing about that was being Yamaha, the corporates a publicly listed company. So they didn't want to go above 15% shareholding. We were able to get to a really good number, a really good shareholding percentage for them, which we're both happy with. And look, for me, it's about being smart, being strategic and ensuring that you're going to have a successful company, but hanging on to what percentage you want to hang on to is all good in theory, but if you've got a company going nowhere, well, then what you hang on to is worth nothing. So you've got to get comfortable with that. I always say generally you've still got the same shares you started with. It's just you're issuing more shares. So if you grow the value in the company, you've still got the same shares you started with, essentially. The other thing we did when we did the deal is we carved out 10% of the company for staff. So all our permanent staff have options and ownership in the company. That's something we really wanted was everyone in the team is a player. Everyone in the organisation makes our organisation what it is and who we are. So we wanted everyone to participate. So when we did the Series A, we gave up 25% of the company, but we were very comfortable with that. And we'd both agreed it was the right thing to do by giving all staff options. Angie, you've done two to three rounds, so you'd assume that you would be used to giving up some control each time round. But how did you approach valuation and determine what stake you're willing to give up come that Series A round? Valuation's a tricky topic because I think a lot of that is really how the market receives you rather than what value you put on the company. And then there's a little bit of negotiation between the two. And in SaaS, it is predominantly a sort of function of your revenues and your growth And then there's maybe a couple of extra things you can put on the table in terms of IP or the sort of brands that you work with or where your customers are that adds to that. In terms of the decision to sort of give it up, though, it's that old catch cry that you either have a big piece of a small pie or a smaller piece of a larger pie. And for me, this was the biggest thing that I hope that I'll do with my life. And so... I wanted to go big on that and I didn't want it to be a little lifestyle business. And with that as well, I think when you go out on your own, you sort of really feel that loneliness of showing up and it's just you. I really wanted that support of feeling that network of people that are behind me that are literally invested in the business. We did the same as Steve is that we carved out an ESOP program for employees and you have to be careful that you protect that because it has to serve you for the life of the company really so you carve it out but you don't want to give it all away at once and you have to do likewise the same with your own shares as well because you want to make sure that you've got enough skin in the game to make it interesting for you as the business continues on and even if you go through subsequent races so it's about working out how much you need to retain that level of interest and how much you can protect that for subsequent rounds. So an investor can look at it and say, 
okay, I feel comfortable with the degree of skin in the game that that founder has. That's a fantastic point, Mm. risk sharing. I want to just shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the process of securing investment. Can you tell us about your experience? What worked well and what did you find the biggest challenges? And Steve, maybe I'll throw to you first. I think what worked well was being really well prepared for raising capital. As I said, we had done a lot of work. We had an excellent DD box. I always work with my team that were always investment ready. In fact, we got very much complimented by the quality of our DD box. So having a really good quality DD box, having factual, well-designed five-year forecasts, validation of the models around the various technologies. That made it a really good experience in the way that actually it was up to them to have to tell us that we were wrong. By having that level that we had in there, very hard for them to argue. They had to go and do a lot of digging to find out whether we were right or wrong. And that put us in a really strong position in terms of the negotiation. We were able to really negotiate some of the terms in the term sheet because of that. We have a very, very friendly term sheet with very few impediments on our ability to continue on the pathway that we want to go. We're not having to answer to everything we do. We can just get on and implement our five-year plan as we'd always plan. So I think that's important to ensure that you understand those areas well before you sign off a contract. Angie, talk to us about the process for you in securing your Series A investment. What worked well and what did you find the biggest challenges were? It was quite different to the previous raises. In our angel round, it sort of took 15 days or so and it all went very fast and we were oversubscribed by the time we got to demo day. So it was a very quick, rapid process and we could focus entirely on growth while we were doing that. For Series A, it was a lot longer journey. People say to allow at least six months, and I think we took six to nine in the end by the time we got dollars in the bank and contracts signed. So it's quite a long, extended process when you're busy trying to be in market and do all of the wonderful things at the same time. We were very fortunate that we had four or five options on the table to explore, one in America, one domestic, one mixed international that we ended up going with, and then one venture our corporate venture. And I think for me, the hardest thing was the corporate piece. We sort of wasted a lot of time talking to a corporate venture fund, which it just in the end didn't align for us, didn't align for them. And corporates tend to move very slowly and we were sort of moving a lot faster in other directions. That was really the hardest piece is that when you sort of get close to those options, unless it's a perfect marriage for you in a corporate, they can soak up a lot of your time and move at a very different pace to what you need to. When we found our partnership with Investable and Rampersand and how we'd previously worked with parties like ICE and K1 here in New Zealand, they really respect and appreciate the fact that you've really just got to focus on building your business that whole time. So that was a real lesson learned, I think, for me going through that process is try and find people who know what the journey is like that are going to be fairly light touch and how you deal with them when you're in capital raising. And if you do find a partner that is just heavy on that time, then they're probably not the partner for the long term as well. Just talking about that, in series one of the investment fix, we talked about the sort of investor-investee partnership as a marriage and the need to find the right match. What were you looking for from prospective investors and how did you choose? More than anything, what we were looking for was support, the right advice at the right time, the right level of involvement, and that's not too light but not too heavy. 
a real Goldilocks relationship. People who had connections and not domestic connections, like I know such and such in New Zealand, but into America, into customers and into maybe VC funds for future over there. And I think more than anything, just that spirit of wanting us to succeed and trusting us to succeed and riding on that. If you get the feeling that an investor is there just to receive status updates and apply pressure and that's kind of their MO or that they are overly cynical rather than faithful, or if they take a really heavy hand in trying to direct you and what to do, I would run in the other direction. We've been so fortunate and this year has been a real proof of that. We've had to navigate a ton of strategic decisions and they've been really there for us in helping talk that through. We have a board of directors and our investors aren't on that board, but we have separate sessions with them to keep them up to date, but also to tap into their knowledge and their networks and get their pattern matching because they can see what everybody else is doing and they know what else is working and what's not. We've pivoted into a hybrid product-led growth business model in terms of our go-to-market. That's been a huge change for us to navigate We've swung a lot of our product and marketing strategies into a new visitor management theme. So they've been behind us in that. We've introduced benchmarking with our first free product as well. So all of that has thrown up lots and lots of questions like how do you deal with software subscription revenues when all of your customers are shut and you charge based on visitation? And how do you manage a team remotely from New Zealand when you're used to being there and market with them? So they've really, really helped us talk things through, find people to connect with, get more experts involved and have just been absolutely immeasurable in navigating what was 2020. And what about you, Steve? What were you looking for as you were starting to consider potential investors? What were the sort of characteristics you were after in the ultimate end investor? The space we've taken on in agritech is not easy. We're trying to solve some really challenging problems and every crop we deal with is bespoke. So we had to look at developing the technologies that could apply across multiple crops to actually create the scale Creating a prototype is absolutely the easiest thing to do. That's the easy part of the journey. It's really when you have to start to look at design for manufacturing, manufacturing, the supply chains, all those things is actually one of the biggest challenges for any startup. So for us, Yamaha brought that outlook of global scale, given they have offices all around the world, they're selling all around the world, they've got supply chain and shops all around the world. So it was the knowledge that we were able to get from them, that support, understanding. It was their potential purchasing power to help us be able to create technology at a different affordable level because it's very, very hard to get cost out when you're building your first 10 or 20 or 30 machines. But being able to be supported by Yamaha to provide us high quality components at very affordable rates, it makes a huge difference. So we weren't having to compromise the quality of the components within our technology. They've got a software division in India who came in and looked at our whole security systems and our whole data backup platforms and supported us through setting that up really well to introductions at all sorts of levels of technologies that they're investing in outside of Yamaha. So introductions to all sorts of wonderful tech companies that have technologies that are relevant to us. But also the other part was the fact they had a venture fund based in Silicon Valley with a agricultural focus was a big important part for us. The insights of what's happening in the market were really, really crucial to us. In your mind, was there anything that really closed the deal with investors? The key thing with us was the 
aligned vision. It was also that Yamaha at the time were really interested in agriculture and ag tech. Like any big corporates, they're looking at what's next for them. Lots of global changes going on in terms of e-bikes and motorcycles and what people are using. And the fact that they wanted to look at something different and they saw ag as a really interesting space and something where they could potentially be impactful and also affect human lives, which is quite dear to them in terms of their strategies as well. And so I think that alignment was really, really key. But I think the big thing was them coming and seeing the tech that we had developed and it had just blown them away that out the back of Taronga, New Zealand, out in the country, there's these guys making sophisticated robots and automation machines. And I think I know that was a really super proud moment for my co-founder, Alistair, who's actually the tech brains behind the business, seeing these top engineers coming to New Zealand and just being blown away that we'd built this and we'd built it in this time frame. That was one of the big things, was actually being able to demonstrate our capabilities and what we delivered. I think the other big thing was I'm 35 years a grower as well. And so what they liked about that was not only are we solving problems for the ag system, but I've 35 years been in the ag system and I know every part of the value chain. So that knowledge and understanding of actually where this technology is going to fit and how it's going to be used and the business models and the business cases around it were really important. I think another area was we have a view that we do a lot of what we do in collaborations and partnerships. So we partner globally in terms of sales, uh, servicing or you know distribution channels because from New Zealand building machines in the ag sector and then trying to have salespeople all over the world and, and service people all over it made no economic sense at all. For example, our Apple Packers, we work with Jenkins Fresh Pack, a New Zealand company who has access to every pack house in Australia and New Zealand and partner with Van Doren in the US who do 75% of the Apple Pack house installs. So our piece of Apple packing technology is just a little piece of a big sophisticated supply chain. And so their ability to know where it fits in each of their customers, they've got the customer relationships. It's just made that whole process really, really easy. So they really like our models. And we've also been transferring our models from being more about just selling hardware to sort of a hardware recurring revenue model. So sort of hardware SaaS model. So we actually collect royalties from every task. All our machines are connected data-wise globally. We can just tap in and see any of our Apple packers packing anywhere in the world, whether in France or the UK or America, Australia, New Zealand, you just dial in. So everything we do is data enabled. We collect from every machine and we can tap into every machine. So just a lot of the way we had thought and modeled our models was, was really interesting to them as well. I think it was just the stars aligned and it was a great deal. Fantastic. And if you had to pick one thing that really helped close the investment round with Rampersand and Investable, what would it have been? We first met them at an NZT event in Queenstown. And I really loved that as well because it was a wonderful ability to get to know people over the course of a few days rather than in five minutes. But after that, I remember one of them described our business as a wolf in sheep's clothing, which they thought was appropriate given we're a country full of sheep and they sort of had that experience down in Queenstown. The one thing that really stood out for them in that assessment was our customer base. We're very fortunate to work with some really incredible places where royal families reside, where space rockets take off and where the world's history is kept. 
And a lot of those are governments. So we have quite a few contracts with US government and with the UK and Canada and Australia and such. And that really impressed them for a small and at that stage relatively young company going into some very, very big government and enterprise brands and having a real hit list of all of those that we had accomplished and more in the works. There's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that it takes to go after big brands like that, but it's really worth it. They are a huge signal for investors that you're on the right track. And they also help attract talent and other customers as well. They're really inspiring places, I think, to learn with. Our, our customers are filled with the most intelligent, amazing people, and they have made such a huge difference in our journey of inspiring us to build great products. To both of you, if you're starting the process of raising a Series A round again, an international Series A round, is there anything you would do differently? I don't know about the round specifically, but I think... When you're talking about chopping up the pie between you and investors, there's a lot of talk about that and not a lot about the ESOP and the vesting of the founders as well. And I think that piece is equally as important. And when you go into it as a founder, you look at vesting as a bad thing because you think, oh, well, I've got to give my shares back to the company almost and then get drip fed them. But it's actually a wonderful mechanism to protect the business itself. And so I think really researching those two things and getting to understand them. ESOP is ridiculously complex on the legal and tech side. So it helps to have some really good advice around that, particularly if you've got the Kiwi company that you're wanting to flip later into the US and you need to future proof for that. And with your vesting, I think the best thing that we've seen on both founder and ESOP shares is to go for quite a long time. Three to five years is now the standard over in Silicon Valley and hopefully will be in the same for New Zealand and really wait and cliff those across subsequent years so that you have that protection because you don't want to find yourself in a position where you've given too much of the company away too early to people who fly by night and they're not putting in the hard slog. And so you really learn to use that vesting as a tool to protect and to future-proof and to make sure that, particularly with ESOP, you have a bank of it to last you for a lifetime. Carpoy. And what about you, Steve? I say to anyone going into a market like the US, for example, you need to be there. You need to understand it. That's so important. Our connections and our relationships, everyone knows who you are. There's a face. That is so powerful when you need to reach out for anything. So being up in the US was absolutely key. And Yamaha has been fantastic as well because of their connection space. They've introduced us to a huge number of people across the US and open doors where we can't and also support us into a number of events which sometimes are incredibly expensive. But you can't beat that face-to-face. Even when I'm investing in other startups, the key thing for me is when someone's coming to me and say, oh, we've got this idea and we think it's going to work in the U.S., before you even build that is get up to the U.S. and actually find your first adopter of your idea or your technology. And that's absolutely key before you actually spend a whole lot of money building a team and not really understanding whether, in fact, your technology or your software platform is even going to be relevant. So I'm really strong on that. You have to be market focused and there's nothing better than those face to face. Even though with COVID, we've all learned to do what we're doing now is Zoom. It's nowhere near the same. In our first 18 months of Yamaha investment, we had 44 Yamaha visits here in New Zealand and Tauranga, including three of the Yamaha directors and a lot of the very high Yamaha senior team. I just think you can't beat building those relationships. 
Thanks both. Some really useful and practical advice. Hey, I'm really interested to know now what's next for each of you and your companies. The growth journey, capital raise journey, what's coming up? What's sort of keeping you busy? Angie? We're really fortunate that we went into the pandemic in a really strong cash position and we've buttoned down the hatches and tightened the belts and made sure that we can continue that through. Because for us, our industry's had a really rough year and all of our customers have been closed for most of the year. Most of them had reopened and then they've all shut down again with what's happening overseas. And so reopening and recovery are really big challenges that for our sector especially once the world gets its vaccine, our customers need 100% of our focus on that problem. And so we need to really concentrate on helping them and rather than try and juggle a raise at the same time. So we've seen that data has played a really important part in reopening and recovery so far. And we believe that that will continue well into the industry bouncing back once tourism starts up again, hopefully in 2021. Especially with that all happening in the background, we're expecting to concentrate our focus on getting the right insights to market for that. So we won't be capital raising for a while yet. Steve, what about you? We're in full growth mode. COVID's been good for us. I think it's highlighted the border control issues, labour issues globally on the food supply chains. Our next key area will be our Series B in early next year. So we've long decided that we were going to do a B and that B was really to take us to the next level, which was not so much for growth capital, but for acquisitions and a really big jump in growth in a different way. We'll be 120 by mid next year in terms of team size. And then we're looking to acquire certain technology that's complementary to ours to make us go bigger and faster. We'll be doing a small bridge in between now and Series B just for working capital because we've had so much demand. We're trying to get on the front foot in terms of having inventory ahead of orders rather than always waiting for orders and trying to build inventories. There's a lot of things we've been really focused on heading to our Series B. One is really ensuring we're achieving our forecast sales targets and revenue targets. And we're in the strongest position we've been for a long time having smashed our revenue numbers for 2020 and already securing down over 30% of 2021's revenue numbers which is pretty exciting. But also on the back of that, we were named in the top 50 ag tech companies in the world this year through the Thrive Innovation in the US. And we also were awarded in the top 50 most innovative robotic companies in the world this year around our log scaling technology, which was pretty exciting. Been up there with names like Microsoft and ABB Robotics and named in that top 50 on the Robotics Business Review. Just all those things aligning. Uh, if you're going to do a Series B is... You want to be approaching it when you're at the top of your game and everything's really doing well and we just feel in our sweet spot at the moment. Well, that does sound like a sweet spot. Sounds like you're both in a strong position for 2021. What I've heard from you both today is that the right venture capital can bring you so much more than money. From new capital connections for the future, support and advice when times are tough, international skills and industry insights, to technology know-how that will help you scale. And one of the key things I'm taking away from talking with both of you is that in this environment, even though it might be harder to front up face-to-face to to investors and customers, building strong, lasting relationships with people and making time to look after those relationships will always be a strong foundation for raising capital and for growing your company. Steve, Angie, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thanks, Dylan. Kia Dylan. 
That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz.